I'm Mark Hutton, oh, by the way. It's really, uh, thank you. It's really good to be back among you. Uh, you know, um, one of my favorite poets, Robert Burns, said the best laid plans of mice and men go off awry. I've learned that that's code for COVID. Um, I, I had every intention of being back here at, and COVID nabbed me. So thank you all for your patience with me and your prayers. I'm, it's miraculous. Uh, I'm here. I'm just grateful and glad to be back and uh, among you. It's good. It's good to see you. I, I was here around a little bit last week. I don't think I really saw anything. I'm still a little bit in that fog, but now I'm 100%, so I'm grateful. And I'm really grateful to be back um, as Goody opened up our series, the Summer Psalm Series, uh, last week in Psalm 1. And it's exciting for me. In fact, I may be a little too excited about, about the Psalms. I can nerd out like that. Um, I, love, I love what these texts do. They can be a real challenge for us, uh, especially if you have a preference for maybe the narratives or some other part of the Bible. Sometimes stepping into the, the Psalms themselves may, may feel a little tricky, but they're very much worth the challenge uh, because they're, they're so valuable to us. Um, even 21st century Christians, these texts are incredibly valuable to us not just because they help us to know Jesus, and, and not just because they help us to have this real and deep relationship with God, but I think because they also are intended to give shape to a really strong, robust faith. And quite frankly, I think that the Psalms, I think it's timely for you all as a church, but also for the church at large to be enriched by the Psalms, by the way that they really inform and shape a strong, robust faith. Because I think that they're important for the days ahead. I have this sneaking suspicion that we are in for um, some challenges and some changes in our community, uh, in this country and probably around the world, things that are gonna put us through our paces. And so we really need something to help give us the strength and the robustness that we're going to need to navigate the transitions that are coming our way. And not just the transition that you are in as a church waiting on your next pastor to arrive, but these transitions that seem to be factoring in all over the place. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to speak using Psalm 3 to talk about how valuable these texts are in order to give shape to this robust or strong faith that I think we need. So if you will turn to uh, Psalm 3, you can look in your Bible there or pull out your phone, or if you're at home, you can pull out your Bible, whatever you use to, to, to read God's Word. I'm going to read from the ESV, uh, but I think you can follow along whatever translation you like. This is Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid 
There are many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask as we open up your word that you speak. Lord, that you use it to transform us. I pray that nothing I would say or do or have said or left unsaid or undone would in any way at all hinder the work of your spirit. I pray as the psalmist prayed, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but I, uh, I think our world is on fire. Um, I think our communities are anxious and stressed and tense. Uh, I have the privilege of kind of living in two places uh, here uh, in Tennessee. Uh, and as different as those two communities are, they have a similarity in that they are anxious and tense, wondering about the future our times, uh, this time, our time, seems to be a, a time of restlessness and anxiety, um, confusion and bewilderment, this sort of constant refrain, like, I didn't even think that could happen. Like, what, what is going on? The things that we see in our community, in our country, there's tensions and it's puzzling. It feels like, like there's a great shift taking place. I don't think I'm alone in that assessment. But it really seems like things are shifting culturally, economically, politically, you name it. I can't fully articulate it. I've said that a number of times and people ask, what do you mean? And I try very hard to articulate it. It's more of a sense, more of a feeling that things are shifting. There's a shift. It started maybe even before COVID, but COVID sort of exacerbated it. And we, we see it in lots of places, in school, in church, in families. Um, in jobs, even the way we do our jobs and the places we do our jobs. Everything, everyone seems to be in a sort of transition. Uh, it feels like we're going from something to something else, and we can't fully articulate that something else, but we sense it. And in a sense, there's a feeling of chaos because we can't sort of articulate, even as we try to wrap our hands around it or even try to guide it or direct it or set goals for it. It's a challenge. I think about uh, my wife is an, an educator, is, is a, a school administrator, and the challenges that people in education, uh, whether it's private school, public school, or if it's even homeschool, trying to figure out how in the world to be prepared this next generation for what's to come, because even trying to articulate and pinpoint what's to come is a challenge. What's to come? What's happening next? Where are we headed? I don't know anything for certain, but it sure feels like we're living in a in an age of great change. But these are the times that God's people have been given. We can't change that fact. It's the reality that we live in. These are the times that you, as God's people, and I, as one of God's people, that we've been given. And there are needs that we have as God's people for ourselves, but also for our greater community, for the people that God has called us to love, our neighbors. What do we need? And what does the world need? How do we bear witness? Well, I think we need to be a people of strong, robust faith. 
We need to be equipped for that and ready for that. And I believe very strongly that the Psalms themselves are that kind of text. The kind of text that actually informs and shapes a strong, robust faith that faces in to the chaos. Doesn't run from it, doesn't avoid it or deny it, but runs into it. Steps into it. Leans into it. As God's people called to bring the hope of the gospel to bear. But to do so, we have to be people of strong and robust faith. And I think the Psalms are especially designed to help us to navigate the chaos and the changes and the demands that the future has in front of us. And I think Psalm 3 is a great place to start. To see how this text actually helps form this idea of this robust, strong faith. These Psalms, you know, they're not a collection of poems like Whitman or, or Wendell Berry, who I love, and uh, Robinson Jefferson. They're not those kind of poems, right? Um, they're actually written by God's people over the span of time. These people who are, are interacting with their own worlds and circumstances and their experiences with it. And those, uh, those experiences kind of resonate with us to some extent. They, they deal with the chaos, the change that, that's coming at them. Uh, they deal with famine and they deal with love and sex and brokenness and joy and pain and all, all of those sorts of things. And they're writing these texts out of this relationship that they have with Yahweh, with God, as they experience all these things. And they're written with that perspective. And while the whole of the Bible speaks to us, the Psalms actually help speak for us to God. They provide this beautiful, powerful, raw, sometimes violent language. And I love it. And I think it's helpful as we step into this to understand, at least the way I see it, is that these texts are sort of guided by at least two things, at least two. The first is this. As we read these psalms, Psalm 3 included, we have to understand that they are all written from a person or a group of people to God. God is the audience from the first of the psalm to the ends of the psalms. He is the primary audience, the one to whom they are addressing every syllable. And within that, there is this expectation that God not only is there, but he listens and he acts. It is, uh, the, it is the uh, norm for them to pray and to speak to God as if he hears and he acts. It is uh, the opposite. It's, it's, it's frustrating when God doesn't seem to, like when Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not the norm. It's the expectation that God will hear. And so all these texts are written with God hearing and acting. Psalm 3 actually begins with the words, O Lord. The psalmist right off the bat, O Lord, is crying out to God. And then in verse 4, the psalmist says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. But that was the expectation. I cry, the Lord hears. That's one thing that guides these psalms and guides Psalm 3. That helps us as we think about what it means to have a strong, robust faith is that it's, it is the norm that I expect God to hear when I cry out and to act in some way. The second thing is this, and it's important too, is that all of these texts, in fact, all of the Old Testament, the Old New Testament as well, but the Old Testament, it's helpful to understand that it's written under the covenantal perspective, God's covenant with his people, this covenant promise that he made. We talked about it weeks ago when we looked at the life of Abraham and Sarah, that God made this covenant promise with them 
with in Genesis 15 when God, uh, God is the one who establishes this covenant that through God he's going to do fulfill this promise of blessing the world through the coming of the Messiah. And he establishes this covenant with his people. That covenant continues on. And so these texts, these psalms are written first to the God who hears, but also as a covenant people responding to the God who hears and acts. And those things sort of guide and help overshadow this whole thing. And it helps us as we think about our own lives as we pray, as we take these psalms into our own hearts, as we meditate on them day and night, as Psalm 1 says, as we incorporate them into the warp and woof of our lives. There's this expectation. He hears, he acts, and I am part of the covenant. Because I have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, I am part of this community. And these texts are written, sort of guiding this and drawing it. It provides the strength that we need in the face of chaos and change and everything else. We need to keep those two things in mind. They're God-directed, and they're guided by this covenantal idea. And so Psalm 3 ties these things together. It's a great place to start because the psalmist, David here, is writing from this experience that he's having. And this experience, as we read about it in a moment, is something that we can relate to, both individually but also corporately and perhaps even on a national scale. The first part of the text is, I read it to you, Psalm 3. I hope you're in the habit when you read the Psalms, if it has a little heading in there, that you read that as well. You should. Psalm 3 begins with this heading, this historical heading. It's one of 14 texts that have this sort of historical heading with David. And it says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds and the theological debate with theologians. To me, that's a, I don't want to do that over the authorship or the validity of this, this historical marker or not. For our sake, I think it conveys this overarching idea that helps us sort of actually apply this and pull out the truth that's within this text. That's why I think that we should pay attention to that. It's there. It's been there for a long time, longer than a lot of these theologians have been around debating this whole thing. And it's useful for us, as all of Scripture is useful for us, for teaching, for training, for reproof, for training in righteousness, all of those things. And it's there. And it helps us as we think about this text being prompted by this event in the life of David that we can read about in 2 Samuel. There are two things to consider from out of this text in a broad sort of way. One is this. It's letting us know that the, that the person possibly that, that wrote this, that David who wrote this, has this event in his life involving his family where he was not such a great dad. He was not such a great husband. He was not such a great guy at a particular point in his life, even though he was still part of the covenantal people, even though he was still a man after God's own heart, he was broken and a failure and a mess. And it marks it because of all the weird dynamics that we have within our own family that we can relate to this. We can relate to this sort of this interpersonal thing that may be going on in the life of the person, the man who wrote this text. That's one thing. But there's a second part of it as well. It has this broad sense of it too is that David, his actions uh, sort of inform what happens in the life of his relationship with Absalom. And when David is chased out of Jerusalem, the king is now off the throne. It's been usurped. There's a new man on the throne. He didn't put himself, he put himself there. God didn't put him there. The man that God put on the throne is out. And it created chaos in the lives of God's people within Israel. It had a national impact that had ripples, created change and chaos that everyone felt. Not just David and his family, everyone felt. So this text then has this beautiful sense in the way that it has both this personal implications, but also for the assembly itself. 
And it, and it transcends even this historical event. It's timeless then because we can relate to it. And David doesn't get bogged down in the details of who said what, when, and how, and where. That's not the point of this. He's laying out something that's happened in his own life. And it's about this strengthening of his own faith. And it becomes part of the warp and woof of God's people right at the very beginning of the Psalms. And it has this beautiful place there. So we can relate to it. Which means that God is inviting us to relate to it. Personally, but also corporately. That's an important thing for us to consider. And so then we step into Psalm 3, 1 and 2. And David lays out for this fact that there are those in opposition to him. They are gathering steam. And he is in the minority and the majority is growing. There are more and more people. Some people might say it's hyperbole. I don't know, but it, for him, there was lots and lots of people. And if 2 Samuel tells us anything, it would have been lots and lots of people who were in opposition to David. And he cries out right off the bat. It's one of the first lessons that we glean from this about what it means to have a robust and strong faith. The first place that he goes is to God with this complaint. This is a lament right off the bat. He lays out his complaint right from the beginning. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are saying of me? There is no salvation for him in God. He lays out this, this, this bold declaration, this bold, this bold complaint of what's happening in his, in his world, in his life. It's, it's happening all around him. Now let's think for a moment who these people are. They're not Philistines. They're not strangers. They're covenant people too. People within David's own circle and his own family. People are saying all kinds of things about him. And notice where he takes it when that happens. He takes it to God with the expectation that God will hear and act. Friends, that is a powerful picture of the strength and the robustness of the faith that we need for days ahead. That our first, our first line is to God with the expectation that he hears and he acts because we are covenant people. Even if it's the covenant people that are giving you a hard time, it's significant. Because the reality is, is David isn't the only one that this happens to. Not then, not now. In fact, this morning, we just read it in Matthew 27, happening to Jesus himself. And Jesus is on the cross. There are people who gather around and they mock him and say all manner of evil against him. And in essence saying, there's no salvation for him in God. Look at what's happening to him. He must have something wrong in his life in order for God to turn on him like this. They said it about David, and David wasn't an innocent man, and they said it about Jesus, and he was. And where do we go? Where does a righteous person go? Where does a person of strong and robust faith go in those moments? The psalmist tells us. He goes to God. He takes it to God with this expectation. And seeing that Jesus has endured that, as Hebrews 4 tells us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. That's a powerful thing for people of strong, robust faith to remember, that we have a high priest who can sympathize, who's been through those things. It's something happening here in these texts 
verse 1 and 2. But something happens between verse 1 and 2 and then 3 through 8. Something happens in that little moment, that little pause moment between those verses where it says, Selah. Something happens in the life of the psalmist. For him to go from this moment, so many are saying there's no salvation for me and God to turn in this next moment. There's a significant shift when he begins to talk about God being a shield about him and sustaining him in his sleep. What happened? What allowed this person of faith to go from these people are gathering against me to exhibiting hope? What happened? One of the first things that we can see in this shift is in verse 5 where he says he lay down and he slept and he woke and the Lord sustained him. How powerful is it to be able to rest in the midst of chaos, knowing that God has sustained you? It's a real simple thing. It's a powerful thing to be able to rest in the face of that, trusting and knowing that God is, is sovereign and he reigns. David seizes on this as God's evidence of sustaining him. And there were other examples, I'm sure, in David's life that maybe floated through his head as he thought about how God... In his experience with God through the past, this covenant God has provided and sustained him over and over and over again. That's something that someone of robust faith and strength in faith does. They remember and count on it, this expectation. And I think it informs the reason that David could say in verse 3 that God is a shield about him and the glory and the lifter of his head. Do you think about God as your shield? Do you think about God as your shield and defender? You should, because he is. God is your shield and your defender. That's the thing to mark people of strong and robust faith, is that they know that and they live with that knowledge. Paul is quick to remind us of that in Romans 8. What he said, when, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can say, God is my shield. Because you have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. You are as much a part of that covenant promise as David and everyone else who has put their faith and trust in God. God is your shield, no matter the chaos that comes. It's a powerful thing for us to rely on. How does it then impact a follower of Christ as we navigate chaos and change? What hope? And David also realized that it was God who had put him in the position that he was in. And God was the one that was going to sustain him there. It was not his glory. It was God's glory. The things that they said about David were probably true. There are things that people say about the church these days and church people. It's probably true. There are so many reports that have come out in recent weeks about things that church folks have done all over the place. And when people say those things about us, it's true. Because we're not perfect. And we have people around in different places that may profess faith in Jesus, but may they don't live that way. We know that. And so we start to hang our head. But you see, it's, it's not ourselves that we boast in. It wasn't himself that David was boasting in. You are the glory and the lifter of my head. 
Christ is the glory and the lifter of your head. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Christ. We boast in what he has done on our behalf, recognizing that we are in constant need of God's saving grace and mercy found only in Jesus. The Lord Jesus is our glory and our lifter of our head. In Christ's death and resurrection, he took our shame. He took our grief, our guilt, our shame, our sin, past, present, and future. He bore it. It is out of the glory of Christ's death and resurrection, out of his work, that we can raise our heads. Because he is our glory. He is the lifter of our heads. We boast in Christ and Christ alone. And as such, a robust faith then recognizes that we are in this right position with God, not because of ourselves, but because of our faith and trust in Christ alone, by grace through faith in him. And so then we can, like David, we can then petition the Father and speak to him as Father. These honest, honest prayers. I have to be honest. I love Psalm 3-7. I know it makes people really uncomfortable especially in the Christian community, because it is not nice. But I love it. Because it is real and raw and honest and truthful about how we often feel. When we see things that are unjust or we feel we've been treated unjustly, and it gives me permission to have these wonderful conversations with God in the car when people cut me off. It gives us this awesome place where we can speak to God because that's what's happening here remember this is our speaking to God God this is the situation going on this is what these people are doing and so David says arise O Lord and save me with this expectation that God will act he hears and he will act and then he prays for you strike all my enemies on the cheek you break the teeth of the wicked we don't like to talk about the fact that we might have enemies, and we don't ever like to call something or someone wicked. But the Bible does. And the truth is, we have people who oppose us. We know that. And there are wicked people and wicked things in the world. And unless God intervenes in their life through Jesus, that's not going to change. There are people who do not like you because you are a member of a church. There are people who do not like this church or any church, and they actively work against it. They're in opposition to God's work and his kingdom in the world. They write about it. They publish it. They live that way. What then does a person of strong, robust faith do in those moments? What do you do in that situation? Well, the psalmist tells us, and we get to embrace this. This is God-directed language shared by, by the community itself or even individually. What does he say? He prays, expecting God to both hear and act out of these covenant promises that God's work is, is engaged in the world and we're invited to engage in that work as well. And so David says, strike them on the cheek, which means to humiliate them. David is humiliated. He's had to run out of Jerusalem. He wants them to be humiliated. He wants God to slap them on the cheek. That's humiliating, to be slapped across the cheek. He wants them to be humiliated. And what, what would happen if all of your teeth were crushed? Could you talk? No. Or if you did, no one could really understand you. He wants the wicked to be silent. 
He's praying that they will be humiliated, embarrassed, and stopped, that God will save him, and that he will silence them. That is language for people of strong, robust faith who want to see God's kingdom advanced, who want to push through what is opposing them in order to, to bear the gospel, to bring the gospel to bear on the world that we live in. And the Psalms are giving us this language that we have to communicate with God and to say even around one another in this place things we may not be able to say anywhere else. Do we want to see the wicked repent and come to Jesus? Absolutely. But we want them to be silent when they try to oppose God's work in the world. We want them to be humiliated so maybe they'll turn, maybe they'll stop, so that the work of God's kingdom can go forward. David is asking, as we should, for complete victory, not just a compromise. No, he's acting, asking for complete victory. That's the only thing that will sustain in this moment. And he's asking for God to bring salvation to his people and blessing on the people. That only comes from the Lord. This is, this is powerful language. This is why the Psalms are so important for a time such as this. Our world's on fire. They need, we need, to be people of a strong, robust faith. And the Psalms help inform what that is because they remind us that God hears us when we pray. And that's the norm. And that should be our expectation, that he's a covenant God working this plan of salvation out, even through his people. And we have this God-directed language that we can go to the Father directly and lay before him our complaints, knowing that those complaints are intended to move us to this assurance that God is at work and he hears us and will act. And it gives us strength in the midst of chaos and change, the kind of thing that we're going to need as things change ahead of us. My hope in the coming weeks as we look at these psalms that is it will help us. It'll help give us the strength that we need. It'll help form us as we look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And we figure out how it is that we need to engage with the Lord in order to be ready to do the work that he's calling you, calling me to do. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we need your help all the time. Oh, I, I pray that you would help us, that your spirit would work within us as we look at your texts, as, we be, as we're open to what you want to do in us and through us, as we hope against everything else that you would use us to help advance the gospel, that we would help to know Jesus, that we would help to make Jesus known. Lord, use the Psalms, use our worship, use our time together to help us to do those very things. I ask this in the powerful and the awesome name of Jesus. Amen.